0: Thank you. Uh, John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known.
1: Hello again, and uh, thanks very much, Anita. Um, we're told, aren't we, that first impressions last. First impressions last. I'm not sure how true that really is, but uh, of course we do put our best foot forward when we have a job interview uh, or we're on our first date. You don't just rock up in your old track pants and favourite t-shirt with holes in it. Um, I'm told as well that all sermons should start with a a great introduction to make a good impression. Um, This is going to have to do for today. Uh, We know the first impression uh, we have of someone, it can last, can't it, for good or for bad when we first meet someone, the way they uh, make an impression on us can dominate how we think about that person going forward. Now, many of you uh, probably can't answer this. It's a bit too hard to remember. But for those who can, try and recall, what was the first impression you had of Jesus? as you heard about him or read about him carefully uh, in detail for the first time? Can you remember what struck you first about him? And has it stayed with you? Has it dominated your thinking about him? Uh, Others, uh, perhaps like myself, uh, might not be able to remember your first impressions of Jesus. I've grown up knowing all about him. Uh, So for everyone, let me ask, if you are trying to introduce Jesus to someone else, someone who doesn't know him, who hasn't heard about him, what kind of first impression of Jesus would you want to give? What first impression of Jesus do you want to give? Now, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer to that. It probably depends on, on many things, especially the person you're talking to. And that might be a good question to chat about more at Morning Tea. How do we give a first good impression of Jesus to others? Is it the way he loves people, even the worst of people? Is it the way he brings clarity to a really complicated world? Is it his willingness to suffer and to die in our place, a saviour who steps into harm's way? Now, it's pretty tough, isn't it, to choose only one first impression to give of someone? It's pretty tough. And I guess the good thing is, of course, that Jesus is not one-dimensional. Hopefully, all of us know or will come to know that, yes, those first impressions we have of him might last, but we can get to know Jesus in so much uh, more richness and nuance and fullness as we keep growing and following him. I hope all of us have found times when we've seen something new, uh, something startling about Jesus that we hadn't noticed before, and that's, that's fueled our growth and maturity as his disciples. In fact, I'd go as far as saying that no matter how well we already know Jesus, no matter how long we've been following him or how mature we are as Christians, it seems to me we all do need a bigger vision of Jesus. That is, we we can't afford to settle for a limited view of who he is as if we know him well enough. Our growth as his disciples, our devotion to him, our hearts before him can all keep growing, can't they? And we will keep growing as disciples as long as our vision of who Jesus is, as our understanding of who he is and how to relate to him, keeps growing. As long as that keeps getting sharper, our understanding, as it keeps getting clearer, we will keep growing as disciples. So how do we do that? How do we keep having a sharper, clearer, better vision of Jesus? How do we grow in our esteem of him? Well, there's plenty of ways, I suppose, but like, Kelly's already plugged the book stall. You might want to pick up a great book to read this year to help you know and look at Jesus from a few different angles. Uh, One I recommend this morning is called The World Next Door. It's a short book, and if you can see, it's not very long. It's brilliant. Uh, It's a very helpful walk through the Apostles' Creed. Uh, Whether you're a mature Christian, it might be the sort of thing that just helps you see things uh, written by by Australian authors in fresh ways, and a great book to give to others as well. We've also got, uh, as as Kelly mentioned, daily reading notes uh, to walk through John uh, in the for the next uh, month or so, uh, very helpful notes to keep praying and growing in the way we see uh, Jesus in our day-to-day. But alongside books and devotion, I think the best way to get to know Jesus is just to keep coming back to the Bible. Uh, as we start our new series out in the book of John today, um, I hope and pray that in the weeks ahead, we will all grow as disciples. As week by week, uh, we learn from John, who's probably Jesus' closest friend on earth, uh, the disciple John, who Jesus loved especially. So John's reason for writing this gospel is to help us know and trust Jesus. And here, in the very start of his biography of Jesus, I reckon we have the best introduction of all time written. It's a crucial introduction to Jesus, where John is giving us our first impression of Jesus. It's an impression that really should last. It's a first impression that should dominate uh, the way we know and relate to Jesus all of our days. See, before John, our author, takes us through the life and ministry of Jesus on the dusty roads of Galilee and beyond, he first steps right back and gives us the deep truths about the nature of reality itself. He shows us not just how Jesus fits into reality, but that Jesus is the centre point. He is the creative agent behind all reality. John starts by saying that, In the beginning was the Word. If you're wondering, well, in the beginning of what? It's in the beginning of everything. Uh, John here is clearly recasting the creation account of Genesis uh, right back at the start of the Bible. first line of the Bible, Genesis 1 uh, 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So from Genesis, we come to understand that there was a time uh, before the beginning, before time itself perhaps, where the only uncreated being was God. Everything else in heaven, the supernatural realm, and everything on earth, the natural realm, everything else has come about because of his creative power. Now with Genesis in mind, for, for thousands of years, Jewish people had very happily got on with life without very clear to them, that in the beginning was God. Everything else came from him. John here says, in the beginning was the word. Now imagine yourself for a moment as a Jewish person in the first century reading this for the first time, or if you're very familiar with this passage, at least try and see it with fresh eyes. Whoever or whatever the word is must be uncreated. It must be uncreated, given what we have in Genesis 1.1, because the word, just like God, must have been there before the beginning. So already before we get a few words into John's gospel we, we see this word has some sort of very close identification with God himself. So who or what even is this word? If you have your bibles open in front of you and suggest you do it it'd be good to have uh, John chapter 1 open. Just get to verse 2 for a second. We're told it's a he. The word is a he. It's not an abstract thing. It's a he. Now just as a quick sidestep, for those who are very new to the Bible and perhaps looking into these things for the first time, uh, it's it's really great to have you with us. I'll just spoil John's tension-building introduction for a second until as we get further into John, uh, like verse 14 and uh, verse 17 in chapter 1, John tells us the Word is Jesus. I'm spoiling the tension, the Word is Jesus. I I just mention that because otherwise it's quite confusing holding all this together. Um, But I mention that, the Word is Jesus, but then just put it in the back of your mind for a little bit longer because we don't get there. Look carefully at the very first impression John is giving us. Um, don't think about the dusty man in sandals with a you know, beautiful long hair and an eternal gaze. we we'll get to that. These deeper truths come first, front and centre, with the word. Now that is a pretty deliberate and unique title, the word, and what does that title tell us? Um, John wrote this in Greek, uh, like the rest of the New Testament, and uh, my wife, Karina, uh, she has set a limit on how many times in a year in a sermons I can talk about Greek words. Um, the limit Karina's given me is once a year. Uh, once a year in a sermon, I can say, well, in the Greek, this means uh, so on and so. And you can thank Karina for that later, because uh, otherwise I think I'd be tempted to tell you a lot of things about Greek words you don't need to know or care about. Now, I realize it's January. There's a whole calendar here in front of me here. I want to use my Greek limit up today uh, to tell you that in the Greek, John tells us that in the beginning was the logos, the logos. Now, I feel like so many of you probably know that it hardly counts, really. Uh, If you've been a Christian and know one Greek word, it's probably that one. Now, in Greek, the word logos means word. (laughs) Now, I'm starting to regret my decision here, maybe I'm not sure. Uh, now, actually, logos means far more than just word. Uh, for those who are Greek and grew up in an environment steeped in Greek philosophy, logos is inner thought. It's reason. It's in English where we get the word logic from. It's broad, though. It can mean communication, speech, a message. Uh, even more than that, for Greeks or for people influenced by our popular Greek philosophy, like so many of John's first readers were, for the Greeks, logos was the rationale, it was the logic that made the whole universe work. More than that, it's where the universe has come from. The logos was the reason or the rationale for existence itself. At a personal level, the logos was understood to be the essence of each human soul, what we might call consciousness, perhaps. And for some of those influential Greek thinkers, the logos really did have divine properties, a god-like status. As the creator and giver of human understanding, so if a Greek thinker, as they read John's Gospel, they'd be thinking, "Yes, of course. In the beginning was the Logos." The now, alongside that, you have Jewish readers. Uh, God and His Word are so closely related in the Old Testament. Time and time again, we see that God's Logos, His Word, for the Jewish people, they would understand that God's Word performs actions. His words do things. His Logos does things. By his word, God created everything. His word does the saving in the Old Testament. He sends his word to save and to reveal. Alongside that, in in scriptures, we see that God's wisdom, uh, it's what holds together the universe. It gives it order and structure and what we might call reason. There are lots of overlaps, aren't there? This Greek idea of Logos and uh, the Jewish understanding of God's wisdom. Now, the point of all of that is that the Logos is not just a word. It's it's a title of a creative being, the one that takes the thoughts of God and communicates and does real things with those thoughts. He expresses the very thoughts of God. If you're with me so far, you're doing very well. Uh, This is not straightforward things, and it does actually get a bit more challenging from here, because what John goes on to say next is mind-blowing for Jews and for Greeks, and for Australians, I think. He goes on to say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So hang on, the Logos is not identical to God. He's with God, so somehow the Logos is distinct. So I think the Greek at this point starts to get confused, saying, well, surely God is the Logos. But that's not what John is saying. There is something more complex going on for the Greek to get their head around, and the Jew is, I'm sure, confused that someone is being put on the same level as God, being with God from the beginning. It's very confusing. A being like God who has always been. But of course, there is only one God. The Bible is very clear about that. John will tell us a bit more about the way the Word is with God, and if you look down towards uh, verse 14, we realise... The expression here is it's God the Son being with God the Father. That's a big theme all through John's Gospel. We'll see this time and again. But if you have a look here in verse 14, we see that he is the one and only Son of God who came from the Father. If you skip over to verse 18, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God, and more on that in a moment, he is in closest relationship with the Father and has made him known. Just picking up for now on that idea of the Son being in closest relationship with the Father. Jesus, as God the Son, expresses and demonstrates his relationship with God the Father. This idea of God as Father and God as Son, it's, it might not be a new idea for many of us if we're familiar with the Bible. But still, this first impression John is giving us of his good mate Jesus that he walked around with and ate food with, His first impression he's giving us is that his identity is is primarily defined by his relationship with God the Father. This gives us a huge clue, I think, as to why God's love is such a fundamental part of who he is. Because the Father and the Son are in closest relationship, perfect relationship, and have been for all eternity. They love one another completely. So we shouldn't be surprised to find then that by nature God is love. So the word was with God, uh, not just coexisting like two rival gods might in pagan myths. The word was with God, closely relating. So the word was with God, and then the most challenging few words I think we get to today, as John introduces us to Jesus, he tells us the word was with God, and the word was God. Now it's okay, by the way, if your brain is starting to hurt a bit at this point, After all, how can the Word be with God and also be God? It sounds really to, on first impressions, those two things can't be happening at the same time, and yet they are, John insists, as the first thing he wants us to know about Jesus. He is God. Now, he doesn't here say that the Word was a God. He's not saying the Word was a God. That would be to treat Jesus as divine or God-like, but ignore the plain teaching of the Bible. There is only one God. Uh, just as importantly, John doesn't say God was the Word. He doesn't say God was the Word. He says the Word was God. And do you notice the difference there? If John said God was the Word, the logos would be the completeness of God. There is nothing else. Which would make no sense of all of what he's just said, that the Word was with God. It's a bit challenging and hopefully good for us as we think deeply about these things because we're entering into the wonderful and majestic topic of the Trinity. It's the very nature of God himself. Now, I find it surprising, actually, given that uh, the word Trinity is in our church name, we actually don't really cover this topic in depth very much, and fair enough, it's uh, not the sort of thing we cover week to week. Historically, uh, for the very first Christians, it didn't seem to be very complicated for them for some reason, because it turns out the Christians were very quick very quick to worship Jesus as Lord and God. It wasn't a problem for them to do that. Even uh, Jesus' own disciple, Thomas, after Jesus' resurrection, uh, we'll read this later in John 20, verse 31. Thomas, a devout Jew up until this point, falls on his knees before Jesus and says to him, my Lord and my God. It's not the sort of thing a devout Jew would say lightly to just one of his mates. Strange, all through the New Testament we see this very happy tension Christians worshipping Jesus as God, and yet Jesus by himself is not not God himself. God the Father, usually in the New Testament just called God, is spoken of as distinct from Christ. The New Testament writers don't seem to try and explain that to us much more than that. They just give us those two truths, they don't say how they work together. But the early church, uh, for a couple hundred years, worked really hard. Some of the brightest minds in all history, I think, uh, poured themselves into this question about the nature of God. If Jesus Christ, the Word, is God, what does that mean, about the nature of God? They came up eventually with a quite satisfying uh, explanation, I think. Uh, It's the doctrine of the Trinity. There are many uh, very thick books unpacking the great nuance and glorious workings of the Trinity, But it can also be summed up pretty simply, I think. Uh, The Father and the Son are distinct persons. Not human persons, of course, but distinct identities. They relate with each other. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. They are distinct. Today we're not going to go into it uh, too much. There's already enough to cover. But just as the Bible talks about the Logos as God, so too the Holy Spirit is regularly spoken about as another identity within who God is. Now, if you want to think a bit more about uh, the Holy Spirit and how his identity works, Romans 8, if you're taking notes, Romans 8 would be a great spot to go to see how the Holy Spirit is spoken of as a real identity and person of God. So there are three divine persons the Bible speaks about, Father, Son, and Spirit, but one God. So the language, quite simply, is three persons, but one essence. God is three persons, And one essence, or if you prefer, one substance. It's critical to hold some of these truths together that each person of the Trinity is fully and equally God. The Father is God, uh, uh, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. John doesn't at all suggest that the Logos is partially God or nearly God, he is God with no qualifications. Now, uh, preachers through the centuries have tried to use uh, many illustrations, and I'm tempted to try and find, up, uh, find an illustration or analogy to explain this. Unfortunately, uh, pretty much every illustration of the Trinity uh, that exists kind of has some part of heresy packed into it somehow, even subtly. I'm pretty keen to avoid being burnt at the stake today, uh, so I'm not, I don't think I can give you a great analogy or illustration of how this all works. Instead, I'm going to stick to much safer ground for preachers, which is creeds. Uh, in the first hundred years... Uh, when the same basic beliefs were held by Christians everywhere, uh, more and more radical ideas and cults were starting to pop up, uh, teaching crazy things about Jesus. So the church gathered to finalise the wording of what makes up orthodox uh, biblical faith. In 325 AD, a conference or council was held in a beautiful place called Nicaea, which is in modern-day Turkey. Uh, Church leaders from then the the known ends of the earth gathered uh, to formalise a creed to help Believers know how to think about the Trinity. We're not going to cover the entire creed today. I'm keen just to uh, take you through the key part about uh, Jesus, God the Son. This is from the start of the creed. I'll read it out for us. It should be on the screen as well. Uh, We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. And through him, all things were made. If we count ourselves to be believers of Jesus, if we are Christians, this is the Christ we believe in. He's not just a nice guy who gives us good advice. He's not a guru who leads us through our life decisions. The identity and the person of Jesus is bigger than we can comprehend. He's true God from true God. If I may ask, is this the Jesus you've been praying to this week? Not a lovely guy with cool powers, uh, looks to make our life better, but the one through whom all things were made. For those here today, uh, perhaps exploring who Jesus is, maybe for the first time, uh, it's so good you're with us. Uh, Welcome. I think this is a really helpful and I hope important introduction of making sense to Jesus and Christianity. If you find yourself a bit sceptical about the claims that Jesus is divine, um, I can certainly understand that scepticism. It's a big claim. But I hope as much as you can see this is John's introduction to Jesus, I hope you can see it's also an invitation. It's a provocative one. This is such an outrageous way to introduce someone. I think John is helping his readers, he's asking his readers, you to keep going, to read the next chapter to see if this is true because it's either all flat out wrong or Jesus is the most important being in the universe. Now we're going to be looking at John's account for, of Jesus' life for the next few months. We'd love to have you keep coming back and joining us. Uh, if you're interested in talking more or uh, yeah, really looking into this deeply, um, there's a tear-off slip on the leaflet. Just uh, make note you'd like to speak more about Jesus and there's a um, the red box to pop that in later. Just come and see me if you'd like to explore some options to get to know Jesus better. Um, Thanks everyone for sticking with me so far in uh, today, what might feel more like a, a theology lecture than a sermon. But I do hope you've already picked up that this is not just abstract theology. Understanding who Jesus is, is crucial, actually. Who he really is. It's vitally important for our lives, because I suppose the alternative is to downplay or to lessen or to be confused about who Jesus really is, and that would be a disaster. I mean, imagine if we were to treat Jesus just casually, like he's just a really good guy, slightly divine, but mostly like us, a good mate. That His job, his, his whole purpose is to look after me and save me and forgive me. That would kind of cheapen him a little, wouldn't it? It would be, I think, treating the eternal, eternally begotten son of God as if he's kind of my personal assistant. To put it another way, he is our saviour, he is our Lord, and he is wonderful, he's majestic. So let's keep, keep making sure our hearts and our minds are set on knowing him, knowing him better, and loving him. Because as we keep finding, to know him, to know him as he really is, is to love him. Now one way I think we could grow in that, I think, is just to pick up from verse 3 in this passage. As one of the key things we're told as we're introduced to Jesus, one way we can keep getting to know him and love him, verse 3, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. This verse moves us from the supernatural verse 1 and 2, the identity of the Trinity, it moves us to the natural. All that we can see and taste and touch and hear, all that we experience in this universe is there because Jesus made it so. The atoms that hold together and make up the chair you're sitting on exist because of Jesus. The trees that grew the coffee that you've enjoyed or will enjoy later today and the tongues you get to enjoy with are all because Jesus made them so. Wouldn't it be helpful, uh, wouldn't it be great to be able to see all of the world, all of the time, as the work of our Lord Jesus? Of course, it's very hard to have that sort of uh, conscious awareness all the time But do you reckon that this week, if we tried to remind ourselves of that more, it would grow our hearts in devotion to him, just taking notice of the world more and admiring him, his creativity, his generosity in every good thing? It can be so hard, though, to have this perspective, this big perspective of Jesus, dominate our thinking about him, partly, I think, because our minds don't quite get it. It's too big, but also because, well, for the rest of what we know about Jesus, it's as a man. We'll come back to this next week and spend more time on the fact that Jesus, as much as he is fully God, is also fully man, fully human. Uh, Verse 14 tells us, the word became flesh. It's a mind-blowing statement. We'll unpack that more next week. But knowing that, knowing that Jesus appeared and came to take on flesh, and that's primarily what we know and how we know him, We do so often, I think, let his divine status as fully God kind of just take the back seat in our thinking sometimes. I know that's the case for me. And perhaps that's why John starts with this stunning description. So as we meet Jesus in the coming pages of of his biography, as we see him in the flesh, I think we're always supposed to hold together this big idea that the word who from the beginning was there with God and who was God is the same one we see on the pages to come. And as we think about our own identity as his disciples, knowing his true identity as God the Son, it does really matter in other key areas of our lives. Inside your leaflets there, you'll see at the bottom of the sermon outline, I've listed just a few areas, you could think up many more, but these are the first that came to my mind that I think are profoundly impacted if we have the highest possible view of Jesus, if we know him and relate to him as God the Son, and nothing less than that. Um, These categories I hope will be good to think and pray more about in the week ahead, and uh, perhaps there may be one of these areas you think, actually, that's the area I want to personally grow in more in the weeks ahead. For now, though, I'll just, uh, by way of wrapping up, just take us through those five dot points I think there are, and just make some very brief comments about each one. So, knowing and relating to Jesus as God the Son will help us listen to, trust, and obey him. We realise if he is God the Son, he alone has authority, the ultimate authority in all that matters, not me. And we can trust him completely. He is the Logos, the word that reveals. He reveals the true nature of reality. If we think of Jesus as anything less than this, we may cheapen his authority in our minds or convince ourselves that other voices are equally valid and should be weighed up alongside his. Next one. Knowing and relating to Jesus as the Word, the Son of God, will help us behold and enjoy his glory and goodness. As much as we should admire the Jesus who is known with his compassion, his kindness and humility, and we'll see how that all unpacks in the coming pages. How much more so will we fall on our knees before him in all of his glory, knowing that God the Son went to the cross, Not a good man, not just a good man. God the Son went to the cross to pay for the forgiveness of sins. The most majestic, powerful being in the universe humbled himself that much because he loves us. Well, knowing and relating to Jesus as the Son of God will help us find comfort in hardship. Because if we're simply following the teaching advice of a pretty nice guy, well, when the going gets tough, what comfort is there really? But if we have entrusted our whole selves, our lives, to the care of the Logos, the wisdom of God who created the universe, if our lives are truly in his hands, yes, we will face hardship. He tells us that. But we know it's not outside of his control. It's not outside of his love. There's great comfort in that. Additionally, no matter what happens, he promises he will never leave us nor forsake us. Also, knowing and relating to Jesus as the Son of God will give us assurance of eternal life. We won't have to doubt if we're good enough for heaven. We don't have to live with the fear of death. Firstly, because that's what He tells us. It's not about what we do, it's about trusting Him. He's the one who gives us eternal life in His name. His promises won't be broken. Also, in those moments, uh, perhaps some of you will experience this even this week feeling crushed or uh, so unworthy of salvation. We can remember it wasn't just a good man who died on the cross, it was God the Son. The value of his life, the value of his blood is infinite, isn't it? It can pay, it has paid for the complete price of all our sins. Surely we may think, God can't forgive me. Absolutely he can. His blood is valuable enough to pay for anything and he has chosen to pay for our forgiveness. It's very good news. Finally, Knowing and relating to Jesus as the Son of God, as God the Son, gives us confidence that we truly know God. In verse 18 here, we're told, even though no one has ever seen God, God the Son has made him known. This is good news. We don't have to chase mystical experiences. Uh, There's no hidden knowledge out there that we just need to track down to find the true nature of things. We don't need to wonder if we're worshipping the right God Because the word, the Logos, is the clearest communication of God, of who he is, and of what he's like. I'm really looking forward to the coming months in John's Gospel, growing in our knowledge and our love for this gracious God. So for now, would you join me as I pray? Lord Jesus, God from God, light from light, please help help us each one, to grow in our clarity and understanding of who you are. And so please help us grow in our love and our devotion for you all of our days. Amen.